0: Welcome to the Aftershock Podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear.
1: You've got to be always vigilant and always think that this is the most important operation I'm ever going to do because for this person, it is the most important operation you're going to do. The Aftershock Podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple
2: effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat. And I'm Kim Landy. And this
0: is the Aftershock Podcast.
2: In this week's episode of the Aftershock Podcast, we're joined by Professor Wendy Brown, Director of Surgery at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne.
0: We go behind the masks and gloves and get into Wendy's operating theatre regime and the connection she makes with her patients.
1: It's about understanding what patients need from you, I guess, and what you can give to them.
2: Being wheeled into an operating theatre is a daunting experience for a patient as they're at the most vulnerable.
0: Surgeons hold a unique position as they go places with the patient no one else can.
1: Something I've had to really learn is how to explain very technical operations in terms that people can understand. Because I'm a really big believer that if you can empower people and if you can make them part of the conversation and Really let them know that you're on the journey with them, that they do so much better because I think healing comes from biology, psychology and sociology. Like we're a combination of all of our environments that we live in and if you can engage people in the part of the journey that's probably the most confronting for everyone, which is going to an operating theatre because it's not something I do every day but it's certainly not something most people have seen other than watching Grey's Anatomy And so we make people very vulnerable. They have to get on a trolley. They're put into a gown and paper knickers, Mm. a cap. It's a little bit depersonalising. They're wheeled along on the trolley. They come to theatre and then they're going to be put to sleep and they just have to trust that while they're asleep that we're going to do all we can to remove the cancer, put them back together and also then wake them up and look after them beyond that. So I think it's really important from the outset that people – understand as much as they can and as much as they want to about what we're doing when we're in there. And so I um, spend a lot of time, I hope, talking to people about what they know, what they don't know, sort of establishing what they understand. And I deal a lot in esophageal and gastric cancer, so Mm -hmm. esophagus is of the gullet and the stomach. And a lot of people don't even know what their esophagus is. Like They're aware that when you chew food up, it whizzes down a tube Mm -hmm. and gets to your stomach but they're not aware of what organs sit near it and it sits near the heart and the lungs, all your main breathing tubes, some really big blood vessels. And so we use a lot of diagrams and pictures to explain how we take out not just the tumour but healthy tissue either side of it. And then obviously we can't leave you with a big 10 centimetre gap between your, your mouth and your stomach. We need to find a way for the food to get through so that you can nourish yourself Um, into the longer term and enjoy eating because, let's face it, eating is, you know, an enjoyable part of life. And so we have to talk then about how we reconstruct or rejoin the digestive tract up. And they're big concepts for people to get their head around, and it usually takes us two or three conversations to go through it. I think the internet is a good and a bad thing, you know. So people Mm -hmm. often go away and Google, or they, well, usually their family members, their children (laughs) will go away and Google it, and um, sometimes that's really helpful, but sometimes that can be um, not so helpful because what you see on the internet is not screened and it's usually people who feel sort of zealous one way or the other that sort of mm-hmm. put posts up. But on the whole, by the time people come to theatre, we hope that they're understanding as best they can what we're going to be doing and understand what tubes are going to be sticking out of them when they wake up because there's usually like a, you know, sometimes they're still asleep in intensive care for a day or two, but when they wake up, there's often a tube coming out their nose, a big droop in their neck some drainage tubes coming out of their side to drain their lungs, um, feeding tubes or other tubes coming out of their abdomen, and then obviously the catheter that nobody likes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at least it's not quite so scary if they wake up and think, oh, yes, we we talked about that. We know that that's going to happen. And we talk a lot also before the operation about how we're going to want people to get out of bed as soon as they can, straight after the operation because we know if we can get you out of bed, even after a massive operation like an esophagectomy where we're opening up the chest and the belly and sometimes the neck, um, if we can get people sitting out of bed the first day after surgery, it's so good for them, for their heart, for their lungs. But I think also your mental state that you feel a bit more like a normal person sitting in a chair. And so it helps get people on the right track. One of my patients, um, you know her, Suze Kelly. Oh, yes. Yes. She famously woke up after her six-hour operation and the first thing she said was, can I get into the chair yet? (laughs) Do you think that's a misconception that people have, like
0: I think that was a misconception for me that you've got to stay still and you'd almost be on bed rest for a while, but I think it's really good to hear how important it is for you to get up almost straight away.
1: I think it probably goes back to, you know, the old days when you'd know, you you'd take to your bed and you'd have some bed rest. Mm. And so I think that really was the doctrine back in the day. And even when I was a young doctor in the early nineties, people who are having an esophagectomy, this big operation that we do for cancer of the esophagus would be in hospital for three to four weeks. Whereas now people are often going home on day nine or 10 after their operation. I think we've come to realize that there is some huge benefits for the patients if we can get them up and moving. It's good for their lungs because you, you breathe more normally when you're sitting up. Yeah. It's good for their um, circulation because if you're moving your muscles, you start to pump the blood and you're less likely to get blood clots. And it's good for your muscles because if you're having to move your muscles even just a little bit to get you in and out of bed, you don't sort of lose those muscles. They don't atrophy. Yes. And and as I said, I think it's also really just good mentally that you feel more like yourself when you sit up in a, in a chair rather than very, it's very vulnerable feeling just lying in bed. Mm. Um, I recently had my knee operated on, which is nowhere near as big an operation as what I do on my patients, just to have my ligaments reconstructed. And lying in bed, I found very, yeah, I felt very confronted by it. I just wanted to get up. It just felt wrong and I, I just didn't feel like me lying in bed. And it's made me think a lot about, you know, often with our patients that, you know, how important it is to have that sense of identity and Mm. some control over your environment. Yeah. Um, Mm. Because it is very disempowering. I must admit, like being wheeled along the corridor to the operating suite as a patient was a very different feeling than being the one that's walking alongside the patient chatting to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that reinforced, again, that need to have that good relationship with your surgeon so that when you do go into the theatre, you know you're not going into it alone.
0: And waking up to that face as well, that must be yeah. really important, especially something so as serious as a cancer-related operation.
1: Yeah, it's nice to know you're not in it by yourself, I think. Do you work closely with an oncologist, Wendy? Yeah, so we, um, I mainly do all my cancer work at the Alfred, which is one of the public hospitals here in Melbourne. and. Even my private patients, I tend to bring through the Alfred just because the operations we do are so big that I like to do them in a sort of big organisation, I guess, where there's good staffing 24-7. And so most of the oncologists I work with are the the team at the Alfred and, you know, they're fantastic, really great guys, but often we have regional or rural patients and so they'll often have their own oncologist in their own areas and so we'll work with there are oncologists there as well and they're important relationships, they're people that you talk to a lot and sometimes neither of you know the right answer, so you go out and find out from a third oncologist or a third surgeon, um, but yeah, we, we tend to work fairly closely and in the surgeries I do, we also work very closely with our radiation oncology um, colleagues and increasingly, gastroenterologists, um, because some of the cancers, if we get them early enough now, we can kind of scrape them away at that early stage. Mm. And sometimes also the gastroenterologists do help us with um, um, staging and, you know, sometimes we need to get different biopsies and things. It's a, So we have what we call a multidisciplinary team. So anyone um, who we see with a new diagnosis of one of our cancers can um, Will be discussed at a meeting where there's a radiologist, so people who look, read the X-rays, um, a pathologist, so people who look at tissue biopsies and can tell us all about the tumor type, and then there'll always be surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, and gastroenterologists in the room. But obviously, also our dietitians, because yeah. the cancers we deal with really impact people's ability to nourish themselves. So the dietitian becomes a really core member of that team, helping people find different ways to get food down. And we also have physiotherapists, cancer support nurses, um, you know, lots of different people to help people on their journey.
0: The surgery Kim and I got to see in esophagectomy, that's not a common procedure and not a lot of patients have it, particularly in Australia. What's the difference and how important is it for organisations, I guess, like the Aftershock to raise awareness around this field? Because, potentially there's less support out there not just from a patient's point of view but from a knowledge in the medicine world point of view of less patients per year are operated on the recovery time is extremely important what is the difference of operating on a non-high volume cancer
1: there's sort of a couple of things that make it a bit different partly like from a patient's point of view the first time they've ever heard of their esophagus is when they get diagnosed with Mm. a cancer So it's really challenging because everyone's heard of breast cancer, everyone's heard of melanoma, everyone's heard of lung cancer, bowel cancer. And that's great because we've had these amazing sort of um, public awareness campaigns for these really common cancers. But there's only about 1,200, I think, um, esophageal cancers diagnosed every year in our country. And because people are, the symptoms, the early symptoms of it are very common, you know, they're reflux, they're, feeling like, you know, things are sticking a little bit as they go through or maybe just some discomfort behind your breastbone occasionally when you swallow. And most of us, you know, you have a big night out and eat a rich meal or drink a little (laughs) bit more alcohol than you should, you can have some of those symptoms. So it's not until it's usually fairly well advanced that people are diagnosed. So at the end of the day, we end up operating on, you know, 30 to 50% of the patients who get diagnosed with these cancers Um, because by the time they're diagnosed, putting them through a really big operation is not going to be to their benefit. So I think having a group like the Aftershock interested helps raise the profile. Mm -hmm. It helps people think again if they are finding that foods, you know, hopefully if people think, oh gosh, I've heard of that that cancer and I've heard that sometimes it can be reflux or that if food's sticking and maybe I should talk to my GP about it rather than just swallowing some more Gaviscon or Enos from the chemist, (laughs) it helps to raise awareness that these cancers are important because they are lethal. You know, only 50% of people who get diagnosed with an esophageal cancer will live beyond 12 months. The other side effect of being a rare cancer is, and especially a cancer that people have never heard of and don't know what the organ is, is that it's really very difficult to get Um, money for
0: research.
1: Yeah. So research money will tend to flow where public interest is and where, where probably conceivably the greatest need is in terms of volume. But in terms of these rare cancers that really are very lethal, unless we get some research funding, we're never going to find the equivalent solution to like the Ron Walker drug that they found for melanoma. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're never going to get all the different treatments that we've got for breast cancer. It's, I'm not saying it's bad they've got those things. I think it's fabulous they've got those of course. things. But I want those things for my patients yeah. too.
2: Wendy, I'm really interested just to know about a typical day in the life of you and what it looks like as well.
1: Um, well, most days we start at. Uh, it depends. If I've got some patients in the private hospital, I usually get up around to six six o'clock and go and see my patients there around 6:30 into 7 and then I usually have my first meeting of the day at the Alfred around seven and that'll usually be something like an audit meeting where we discuss um, how our outcomes have been with the patients you know from the week before or a quality assurance meeting where we talk about um, different things that you know, we're, we're looking to do to improve um, outcomes for our patients, or it'll be just a, like a ward round where we review um, all of our um, patients who are on the ward. And if I'm operating, I need to be in the operating theatre by eight o'clock. And we do what we call a huddle where the group get together and we all introduce ourselves because sometimes, you know, most often I've worked with most of the people, but occasionally there's someone there that, you know, we haven't worked with before. Mm-hmm. And I usually describe, you know, the case to the the rest of the team and talk about what we think might be challenges. The anaesthetist raises what they think might be challenges and the nursing staff um, bring up any points of concerns and the technicians will ask us about, you know, how we're going to position the patient. And that takes us about five, 10 minutes. And then I'll pop down and see the patient, have a chat, make sure that they're happy with everything. And then typically they're in theatre sort of by about, 20 past eight and we plan to start our operation usually around 8.30. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the days where I'm not operating, I'll often see patients, which is usually face-to-face, but at the moment <laughs> we're doing a lot of telehealth. A little different. <laughs> and so um, spend, you know, four or five hours just seeing patients. Usually have about half an hour to 45 minutes with new patients and sort of 15-minute patient reviews for the other patients, the people that I know more, I know well or I'm reviewing and then um, I have a substantive teaching and research role as well. So I'll do tutorials during the week for medical students or for our trainees and I guess I write papers and I've got PhD students that I have to meet with and check how they're doing and read their what they're writing. Um, I write papers of my own, not as many as I should. I usually <laughs> find I get a bit <laughs> sidetracked. And I seem to go to a lot of meetings, so there seems to be lots and lots of meetings to go to yeah. where we talk about, because I'm the Director of Surgery at the Alfred now, so we talk about things like how we can improve, you know, patient flow. At the moment, we're talking a lot about COVID and how we're going to mm. be able to get, you know, the patients through, as many patients through as we can, as safely as we can once we're allowed to do a bit more operating. And um, so yeah, it's amazing how many meetings there can be in a day. I never <laughs> I never I never dreamed how many meetings there could be in a day. Oh, couldn't agree more. Um,
2: if you've had a really big day or a hard day, how do you turn off?
1: Usually I like to walk or, you know, I often walk home from work because I don't live too far from the Alfred. And I really like that. I try to walk through the gardens and yeah. Yeah. just sort of breathe fresh air and sort of look at the sky. And I find that really meditative and good um I've tried all the things like mindfulness and um meditation but I usually just fall asleep so I find I'm not too good at that <laughs> um that's <but>, not <laughs> a bad way to fall asleep though yeah it's true <laughs> uh, but um I find like chatting to my family and friends like you know it's good because my husband's not medical and we just talk about all sorts of other things yeah. and um if if something's gone you know the things I. I need to debrief then I'm really lucky I've got lots of friends that are doctors as well and we often call each other and talk things through but really big days ideally I'd love to go for a run but I can't run with my knee at no. the moment oh, yeah. but yeah I like running I think that's just as closest to meditation as I get I think that counting you know is that I can switch your brain off a little bit.
0: The teamwork in the operating theatre that Kim and I saw was just fascinating and again Thankfully, I've spent little to absolutely no time in an operating theatre, which is good. But I did see a bit through my mum's operations and having met the people I have since starting the aftershock and how important, for instance, it is for a surgeon and their anaesthetist to have a great working relationship. And um, I know you've mentioned it before, you know, you're the second surgeon in charge Talk us through the dynamic of an operating theatre and how important those relationships are.
1: Yeah, it's a a really important, like you have to work as a highly functioning team because it is a big team, a big group of people and the nature of some of the big hospitals we work in, you can't guarantee you've always got people in there that you know. So that's why we start the day with the huddle now, which I think has been, is a really good thing because it just establishes the ground rules that everyone knows everyone's name, that we know what our roles are and what our responsibilities are from the outset. And so in the operating suite, there'll always be the anaesthetist and in a public hospital, um, there'll usually be an anaesthetic registrar or fellow. So they're doctors who are training to be anaesthetists and they're responsible for, you know, I guess in simple terms, putting you to sleep, but also more importantly, waking you up. So they're a bit like a pilot. You know, they do a lot of work in the, at the beginning. So they, put special drips in and lines that they can measure how your heart and lungs are going during the operation. They um, take responsibility for making sure that your your body is not in an unusual position, putting pressure on your nerves or um, on your muscles so that you wake up you know, without any problems there. Especially those and seven
0: hour operations. Like yeah, you just, yeah. your body just can't lay that. Like again, me being completely ignorant was like, oh, of course it needs to be moved and it's not going to move itself.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then they also have a very important role in pain management, you know, mm. making sure that you don't have pain while you're asleep, but, and you stay asleep, but also afterwards that you, we can maximize the pain relief so that we can achieve that aim of getting the patient out of the chair, into a chair the next day and doing lots of deep breathing and coughing and getting their lungs and their, um, their body moving, getting the blood circulating. So the anaesthetist is obviously a really critical member of the team and, you know, obviously one of the leaders in theatre and anything to do with the airway or breathing or their blood circulation, really, we, we take direction from the anaesthetist. So if I'm doing a part of the operation where I'm putting on the heart, pushing on the heart, trying to get the esophagus out, I need the anaesthetist to tell me, hey, you're pushing too hard and the blood's, you know, blood pressure's dropping. Yeah, So we've just constantly got to be talking to each other and noticing what each other's doing. And similarly in the operation like an esophagectomy, we have to collapse the right lung out of the way so that we can get to the um, esophagus and that means they have to maintain the person's breathing on one lung for that period of the operation. That's incredible. <laughs> and so, so it's kind of a tricky manoeuvre and that we have to just work together to make sure it it happens and and work seamlessly and that the patient's safe at all times because that's really our priority is patient safety. Um, so the anaesthetic team, so there's the anaesthetist and then their trainees and they have an anaesthetic nurse who's dedicated to them and they're highly skilled individuals who kind of know all the stuff that the anaesthetists need and can anticipate what they need and make sure things are there in a, in a hurry. Because I mean, like an aeroplane, if things go, usually 99.95% of the time, things go very, very smoothly. Mm. But it's that 0.05% of the time where you need to be able to do things and do them quickly. Yeah. Then we have our technicians and they're the people that help us with all the machines that we use and they've got to make sure the machines are working, that they're hooked up correctly and that we can get all the cords we need smoothly onto the patient. And they also um, make sure the operating table's working and that we can get the patient into the appropriate positions and help us move the patients. There's the scrub scout team. So it's the scrub nurse. Mm-hmm. And she'll usually have one or two nurses that we call scout. So they run around and get the bits and pieces because once mm-hmm. we wash our hands and put our gowns and gloves on, we can't walk away from the patient. We have to stay in the sterile field. So... Again, the scrub scout nurse, a bit like the anesthetic nurses, they kind of know all the instruments that we use typically. They have them all prepared ahead of time. And they can usually anticipate um, what we need, but it's really important that we communicate clearly to them at all times. And if we see look ahead and think, oh, this I might need that, they usually have things sort of sitting, waiting to go so that we can open them at, again straight away. And then... My direct team um, over the patient, like the operating team, will be me and then usually a second surgeon or a a senior, like a fellow, so someone who's qualified as a surgeon but doing some sub-specialty training in my area, and then usually one of our registrars who are sort of a trainee surgeon, and we usually try to get our interns or our more junior doctors to scrub in occasionally just so that they get a chance to see what it's like and Mm. to really experience, um, you know, being part of the operating team. And every single one of those people are really important, even if it's that they're holding what we call a retractor, which is an instrument that pushes other organs out of the way. If I don't have that person there, I can't see what I'm doing. And if I can't see what I'm doing, I can't operate. And so, you know, we all work very closely. And it's that communication between me and my scrub nurse, me and my assistant, me and my um, anaesthetist and the technician in the room, we've just got to be very clear at all times. And um, it's, that's a bit of an art because, like, lately you've all gotten used to wearing masks around town. Yes. Mm. We wear masks all the time at work and I'm a bit softly spoken and so it can be hard for people to hear me yeah. with masks. So you, you, I don't know if you notice when you're walking and talking with your masks on, it can be harder to hear people. Oh, absolutely. Well, in the opera. In the operating suite we're all wearing masks all the time and so we there's i guess there's always the verbal cues but there's the non-verbal cues but sometimes people might think oh well when we're in theater that maybe we're a bit short with people but it's i guess partly you know if you need something like yes you know, a scalpel you sort of oh could i please have the scalpel you know it's <laughs> you kind of need things straight away sometimes yeah. but it's also just it's easier for people to hear you if you're more direct um when you're wearing or wearing masks but the, the good thing is that when you work with people often, you know, there's a, a few nurses that I work with that I've worked with for, gosh, worked with Julie probably for the best part of 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. at, at my private hospital I worked with, I worked with Donna and um, the others probably, the uh, Kate and Donna, I'd say for 15 years or so I find that they kind of know what I want before I know I want it (laughs)
0: and no one else can see this but you're like beaming with a smile which when you talk about which I think is pretty nice (laughs) because
1: they um like I'll be doing something and I'll have my head down and you don't want to move both hands because you might be holding you know you finally got the tumor free and you're holding it you don't want to let it go and you put your hand out and Julie kind of knows oh Wendy wants um she wants the force, you know, the crushing forceps, and she hands it to mm. me, you know. And the, it's funny because the junior doctors will say, "How does she know you want that?" i like, oh, "Oh, we've done it a few times." <laughs> you know? um, but that's when you know you're working in a good team when people, because yeah. uh, she's watching it just as intensely as I am, and she knows exactly what I'm doing. And she also, it's really important that, um, you know, the all of the members of the team are empowered to say, why are you cutting that? Hmm. Or what are you doing that for? Because, hmm. you know, if they see that I'm doing something wrong, they need to be able to sing out because it's all about patient safety. At Absolutely. the end of the day, we're there for the patient. It's not about my pride or my ego or, you know, if, no. if ever there's something like that, you just want to know that the whole team are behind you and supporting you and saying, yeah, no, don't do that um, or think about that even so that you can um, make sure you do the right thing for your patient.
0: Talk to us about Kelly. You mentioned her before. Uh, Kim and I had the pleasure of getting to know her and her wonderful family last year um, through the Aftershocks exhibition where um, Kim magnificently documented many different stories of cancer, especially Kelly. I think we walked away from Kelly's farm in Me Tongue just thinking, geez, this is the most pure, beautiful family <laughs> we've <laughs> ever come across. Um, how did you form such a special relationship with her
1: I think she's just a very easy person to get to know but I think in honesty with all of my cancer patients in particular or the majority it's you can never say oh you do it is a very special relationship it's not a friendship you're Mm. um because you're still their doctor but you you go with them to places that nobody else can And, you know, I'm the only one that can go to the operating suite with them. I have my hands inside their chest. Yeah. Um, I have. um, And I have to take care of them. Even, you know, hopefully things go really well and people do go home sort of eight to ten days after surgery. But sometimes where we join the bow together doesn't take and things leak and people can end up being in hospital for months. Mm. And so you've got to be, you've got to have an empathy and you've got to have a a relationship that supports them in the way they need to be supported. And it's about understanding, you know, what patients need from you, I guess, and what you can give to them. Um, and so, you know, I guess Kelly's a very easy person, as you've met, you know, she's a very easy person to, to help because she really wanted to help herself. I'd say the vast majority of people go into this ready to fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... I think Kelly just went to the next level, preparing herself with, um, you know, getting her fitness right, her nutrition right. Um, her family were incredibly supportive, and you know, we're just really she she did sail through the surgery, and I think a lot of it was just her positive attitude.
2: You probably met thousands and thousands of people, but is there any? Anything in particular
1: that sticks out to you over the course of your career? Oh, gosh. I've had met so many amazing people along the way. Um, but, you know, I've, some of the patients, I guess there's one patient that I've got who I, she was one of the first patients I'd treated for cancer when I first came back as a very junior um, surgeon and she's still alive today, luckily, so sort of 15 mm-hmm. years later. And, you know, she comes in and sees me every year because strictly speaking, after five years, we sort of say people are cured, but, you know, it's hard to let go of people. (laughs) And so (laughs) they come and see me and she, her mum used to make, she had some complications. She leaked from her original operation and um, ended up being in hospital for about eight weeks or maybe 12 weeks. It was a long time, but she was a real fighter. And she barred for Collingwood and one of the Collingwood guys came in and visited her. And I think that fucked her up a lot. The nurses arranged that for her. But she's now, you know, alive all these years later. And every Christmas, she, her mum used to make me a Christmas cake, but her mum unfortunately passed. Um, she was, you know, of old age. And, and now she brings me a Christmas cake every year, which is just really lovely. You know, she has um, done that for me. Um, I've got other, you know, just gorgeous patients that unfortunately we didn't get the cancer Mm. early enough and even though they had just the same positive attitude, really strong family supports, um, even though we thought we got it out at the time of surgery, 12 months later the cancer came back and again, it was really special to be part of um, that process in a way, I suppose. Um, They fought. Really hard, tried different alternative therapies, um, but in the end, the cancer got the better of them and um, again, you know, just being this one particular man I'm thinking of being with him and his family and the beautiful letter his wife wrote me afterwards, mm. Um, mm. even though we couldn't cure him, you know she was very grateful for the the good times that they did have along the way. yeah. Yeah, it's, we have to be respectful of every operation. And you know, I think once you start seeing, I remember my mentor in Brisbane, the guy called um, Mark Smithers, and I remember saying to him, because when at this first, one of these first patients I had, as I was saying, she um, had a few complications and it knocked my confidence a bit. I think she was about the fifth patient I'd operated on independently when I got back and I rang Mark and said, oh, I can't wait till I get to a point where I'm like you, where I can do these operations and not worry and sleep well at night and not think about all the things that could go wrong. And he goes, oh, mate, it gets worse. <laughs> he said, because the, the more you do, the more you know can go wrong. Yeah. And he said that the minute you stop respecting every operation as if it was your first is probably when you should be stopping because you've got you've to be always vigilant and always think that this is the most important operation I'm ever going to do. Because for this person it is the most important yeah. operation you're gonna do. Yeah. So Do you yeah, get butterflies? Yeah, I do. It's a bit like sitting an exam, I think. Yeah. Like I get a bit of a funny tummy in the morning and I don't feel like eating. And yeah. um, so like often the nurses say, Oh, I hope you've had a big breakfast before when the big operations are like, no, nah, I can't eat. No. <laughs> and I don't I really don't get my appetite till that night, you know, once I've gone home wow. and everything's I know everything's okay. Yeah. But I think it's a bit like doing an exam. Yeah, and then waiting to get the test, like, because we get them to swallow some dye and we watch it on an X-ray just to make sure where we've joined the gut up um, has joined up properly. And waiting for that test result is a bit like waiting for your exam results (laughs) (laughs) to make sure everything's okay. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait for the registrar to call. Like, I'm sort of twitching, waiting. And now I can look online. I'm constantly looking, you know, to see the results. Yeah. Of course. I'd really like to give you a big call out, Kim and Suze, for what you do. I think it's amazing that, you know, what you've both been through and how you've channeled this into such a positive thing like the aftershock. You know, it's such a joy for us to um, work with people who are so passionate about doing something for other people. And you know, focusing on rare cancers is really brave because it's not like you can do a marketing program around something that people understand or know. Mm. It's it's taking people to territories they've never heard of. And I guess in some ways it's a bit like Beyond Blue was back in the day when yeah, everyone, just thought, everyone thought depression was just, you know, a bit of a moral failing that you just need to buck up, you know, get the black dog off your shoulder and mm. just get out there and get on with it. Um, But through Beyond Blue and other charities' works, it's become much more apparent that there's so much more to it, that it is a disease and it needs a serious solution. And I feel like you guys are the pioneers in this space, helping the community understand that there are – we're not taking away from all the other really important cancers, but there are other cancers out there and that there are people that suffer from these rare cancers and they're far more likely to die of these rare cancers than any of these other – of our more common cancers – And that's largely due to the fact that people are not aware of the symptoms of early disease and they don't seek medical help early, but also because we just don't have the research funding to look for those new treatments. So I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for your passion and for turning really horrible situations for yourself into something that's so positive for other people and for other families. So, thank you. You're just oh, both fantastic. You, and I just want to say thank you very thank much. You.
0: Well, the aftershock certainly can't do it. Um, it's in the name, I guess. It's the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Um, and surgeons are a huge part of that ripple effect because, um, you know, like you said, a lot of these patients are dying from lesser known cancers. Um, and we need surgeons and researchers to be passionate about these fields. Otherwise, the survival rates will never improve. So thank you and your amazing colleagues we've met along the way.
1: Pleasure.
2: Thank you so much to Wendy for joining us on the Aftershock podcast.
0: We're so grateful to have specialists and advocates such as Wendy helping us drive awareness for lesser known cancers. Until next time, I'm Susie Nee. And I'm Kim Landy.
1: And this has been the Aftershock podcast.